I know that in history there have always been assaults on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. In fact, the attacks upon the Word of God and the deity of Christ and other sacred truths found themselves under attack right out of the chute. Even before the gospel had been sent to the Gentiles through the apostles, false teachers were already attempting to discredit, dismantle, and deny the truth. But I must say it's difficult for me to conceive of a time in history when so many aspects of the Word of God were under attack as they are today. Today, scriptures are under attack by groups like the Jesus Seminar and the Textual Criticism Crowd and books like Misquoting Jesus that I saw in the bookstore the other day. Theology proper is under attack by the proponents of open theism. The gospel itself has been under attack by the cheap grace, no lordship evangelicals. Justification by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ are being subverted by guys like Sanders and Wright and their new perspective on Paul. Biblical ecclesiology is under attack by the emergent church movement and guys who think that the church needs to be reinvented in order that it will survive. This same church that Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against it needs to be reinvented to survive it seems like every major doctrine in the Bible is under attack these days. And I tell you, it's absolutely stunning when you begin to get a feel for the breadth and scope of the attacks on true biblical Christianity. And now, of course, in kind of the eye of the storm, as it were, we have this book become movie called The Da Vinci Code. This takes the battle that used to be held in the classrooms and lecture halls and the journals of the theologically elite and kind of drops it like a bag of wet cement right into the living room of your middle class suburbia. You think there's confusion about the Bible now? You think there's confusion about the Bible now? Wait until this thing hits the theaters. I mean, think about it. Dan Brown has got millions of people talking about a bunch of old heresies as if they were some bit of juicy religious tabloid scandal. This is old stuff. It's just been rehashed and repackaged to make it look new. In book form, The Da Vinci Code has sold more than 10 million copies worldwide. It's a popular thing. That's why it's being made into a movie. The movie's due for release in May. It stars Tom Hanks. It's produced by Ron Howard. I mean, these are, these are top guys. And in case you haven't read it, and I recommend that you don't, The Da Vinci Code is a blockbusting, bestseller piece of fiction that has taken the world by storm over the last several years. It's a gripping, fast-paced novel that takes place in exotic locations throughout Europe and France and Britain. It's filled with intricate puzzles and electrifying cliffhangers. It's the kind of book that once you get started, you don't want to put it down. It's a fast read. And its appeal is not only its riveting plot, but also the fact that it suggests a spiritual conspiracy that has been perpetuated down through the ages regarding Jesus and the Bible. The fact is, people like to discover something that's been hidden, something like a hidden treasure or some 
hidden conspiracy about something that's important to your average person. And the Da Vinci Code delivers that in spades. Some of the claims of the book, which it makes about Christianity, are as follows. This is just some of what's in there. Christians, number one, Christians didn't recognize the deity of Christ until the 4th century A.D. when groups of bishops voted on the divinity of Christ. And he claims that the vote was pretty close which it wasn't. Secondly, the earliest record about Jesus, which it claims are the Gnostic Gospels discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, are not the records that appear in the New Testament. It's false. Number three, the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were edited and embellished by the Emperor Constantine to make Jesus appear divine. Number four, Jesus and Mary were married. Jesus and Mary Magdalene got married and had a child. Fifthly, early Jews and Christians worshipped God through ritualistic sex. And finally, that God had a female counterpart, even in the Old Testament, and her name, get this, is Shekinah. A word that's not even in the Bible. Now, all of these assertions are easily proven to be patently false by both documented history and the established biblical record. But amazingly, people by the thousands, perhaps by the millions, are accepting this as true. Even though in the front of the book he says this is fiction. Why are people accepting it as true? Listen, folks, when you take a fictitious story and pepper it with enough truth to make it sound both interesting and plausible and throw it into a crowd that lacks even the most elementary level of discernment because they have jettisoned the notion of truth, you're going to have a bestseller regardless of how badly the book misses the mark. And that's what we have in the Da Vinci Code. Now... My purpose for bringing all this up today is to expose for you a classic example of spiritual warfare on a global level. We are in Ephesians 6. We're learning about spiritual warfare. I can't resist taking this and showing you how Satan is on the move around the world to discredit God, to belittle Christ, and then to help equip you for how you should respond. As I pointed out last week, Satan's strategy is two-pronged. On the one hand, he seeks to tempt, trick, and confuse true believers into dishonoring and disobeying God's word. On the other side, however, he is out to blind the minds of the unbelieving, Paul says, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 By all means, he seeks to deceive the saints and blind the unbelieving. And that's what the Da Vinci Code is really all about. That's really what's behind this. Whenever you see things like this coming down the pike, beloved, we need to understand two things. First, that men like Dan Brown are not causing the confusion and apostasy that is bound to result from this. He will be held accountable, yes, by God, yes. But he is not ultimately the one who is doing this. Ephesians 6.12 
tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, the real battle taking place isn't with men like Dan Brown. It's with the devil and his angels. And secondly... The second thing we need to understand is that while our battle is with powerful, unseen forces of evil, God has promised that their purposes are ultimately doomed to fail. Their purposes are ultimately doomed to fail. The Lord Jesus himself said that he will indeed build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In the end, none of those whom the Father has given to the Son will be lost. Not a one. And Satan, in the end, and all those who follow him will be cast into the lake of fire forever and forever and forever. These truths are established and cannot be shaken. So don't become discouraged, beloved, when you see this kind of thing coming down the pike, when you see these kinds of movies, when you see these kinds of books that people are buying into, and people are questioning whether or not the Bible is true, whether Jesus really was divine. It's all based on foolishness. I hope by next week to have a a, a document that I want to give all of you so that you'll be prepared in regard to the Da Vinci Code to understand why it's foolishness. And so my goal this morning then is to undergird this truth of Scripture. When you walk out of here today, I want you to be encouraged in the knowledge that Satan's devices are sure to fail. In fact, there are four truths I want you to learn about your enemy before you leave this morning. Four things that I think are essential for you to learn about your enemy before you leave this morning. Number one, his origin is finite. His origin is finite. Now let me ask you a few questions, class, and you go ahead and respond verbally, okay? What is the What is the opposite of darkness? Light. Good. What is the opposite of difficult? Easy. Good. What is the opposite of good? Bad. Excellent. Now, what is the opposite of God? Now, if your answer to that question was Satan, I'm sorry. But you are mistaken. In fact, you just got set up. The opposite of God is not Satan. Why? God has no opposite. He has no opposite. There is no one and nothing like God in the universe. In fact, everything that exists finds its ultimate origin in God. For all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. To Him be the glory forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. Romans 11.36 
When you think of Satan, it's important that you realize he is not divine. He is not a god. He is not in any real sense even the arch nemesis of God. Many years ago, there was a heresy that taught that there were actually two gods controlling human affairs. It was called dualism. Dualism. And it taught that there was indeed a God, the creator, but that there was also another God, a kind of demiurge, as they used to call it. They said he was a God over and against God, like the Eastern philosophy of yin and yang, which teaches that there is good and evil in equal and proportionate balance in the universe. And that all good has an element of evil, and all evil has an element of good. That is false. Satan is not like this at all. God is infinite. He has no beginning. He is the great I am, which indicates that he exists and always has existed outside of time and space. How does he see time? Picture the edge of my Bible as the beginning of time and the end of time. God looks at it like this from the outside. He sees the beginning. He sees the end. He knows what's coming because he sees the whole thing at the same time. He is the I, not will be, not was, the I am. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who was never created. He was created by no one, and everything that is finds its origin in him. Everything that is finds its origin in him. Not so with Satan. The devil is simply a created being who rebelled against God before the creation of man and who desires to usurp God from his throne as if to take his place. Now, I want to show you this in Scripture. Turn to Ezekiel 28. We're going to look at a couple of texts this morning. This is, it's after Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28 And we're going to start in verse 12 and read through verse 18. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. Thus says the Lord, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The lapis, the lazuli, whatever that is, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. But the abundance of, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence. And you sinned 
Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they, have, that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Well, this is one of those prophecies in the Bible that applies both to an earthly king, but also to Satan himself. And that's evident from the text. Verse 12 says that he was a being so complete that he possessed the seal of perfection. That could be no human king. And notice verse 13, that he was in Eden, the garden of God, another indirect reference to Satan who appeared to Eve as a serpent. And what do we learn about him? Verse 14, he is called the anointed cherub who covers Now, angels were often associated with God's holiness. They're almost always associated with God's holiness. And often in the Bible, they are the ones who are there covering, as it were, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of sacrifice, covering the place where atonement was made. But this angel in this passage was not just a covering angel. He was an anointed angel who covers. And some believe this special designation set him apart as the highest of the angels, full of glory, full of holiness. But one day, verse 15, unrighteousness was found in him. He became rebellious. Verse 17, and his heart was lifted up because of his beauty. His perfection was the cause of his corruption. His perfection was what lifted him up and brought him down into corruption. He became proud. He became proud. He was the top dog. He was the highest angel. He was above everyone. The only one who, wasn't abo- who was uh, above him was God himself, and he didn't like that. He wanted to be God. And by the way, we see the reflection in this in the serpent, right, when he comes to Eve. And he promises them what? You, you could become like God. You could become like God. And what was the result of his pride? Verse 18, God cast him out of heaven. And by the way, regarding God casting him out, look at Isaiah. You've got to turn to the left here. Go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15 read, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit." 
If you're reading out of the King James Version, star of the morning here is translated Lucifer. Lucifer. He was the shining one. It was more glorious than all the other angels. But God cast him out of heaven. Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I saw it. Jesus said, Satan was cast down like lightning. And notice in Isaiah 14 how many times Lucifer said, this gives us the reason why, How many times Lucifer said, I will, I will, I will, I will. His pride made him discontent. He began setting his sights on taking God's throne for himself. So God threw him down. Who is Satan? Is he a god? No. He is a created being who has rebelled against God. And ironically... He's the one who was created by the very Christ that he hates. He was created by the Christ that he hates. Colossians 1.16, Paul says, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and in earth, visible and invisible. Now listen to this. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now we've already established in past messages that... Anytime phraseology is used like that, it's, it's, it's talking about angels, either heavenly or demonic. He created all these things that have been created by him and for him. In spite, of, in spite of all of his proud plans, Satan will never be more than one of God's creatures. He is not infinite, nor is he omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He cannot be in more than one place at the same time. In fact, he can't do a single thing against one of God's people without first receiving permission from God. He can't do anything without first submitting to the authority of God. Now, how do we know that? Well, we, boy, we could get into a whole series of messages just on this. This is so important for us to realize that whenever tragedy strikes in our lives, we need to understand. You'll hear people say, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. God didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, we can't blame the tsunami on God. We can't blame the earthquake on God. We can't blame that terrible accident on God. Well, that's a pretty simplistic view of the word of God. And it strips God of his sovereignty. Before Satan could have his way with Job, you remember in Job chapter 1, what did he have to do first? He had to present his case before God. You remember when Satan came, Jesus says that before Satan could sift Peter like wheat, Luke chapter 22, Jesus said he had to get permission first. God gave him permission. Listen, Satan is not a God. He is nothing more than a spiritual lackey to God. And he's on a short leash. He can do nothing to harm you in an unrestrained way. He cannot harm you unless God should allow it. In fact, whenever God uses him to accomplish some purpose in our lives, whether it be to humble us, as was the case with the Apostle Paul, you remember, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, or to discipline us, 
as was the case with King Saul in the Old Testament. It's always according to the sovereign and perfectly measured restraint of God to fulfill some good design in your life. Satan is not free to do as he pleases. He is not free to do as he pleases. Everything he does is evil, but he is not free to do all the evil he chooses. He is restrained by God. Now, beloved, you need to understand this. Because if you strip God of his sovereignty at this point, before the tragedy then you don't have anything to stand on to trust God's sovereignty after the tragedy. You understand that? If you can't go to the Word of God and see, for instance, Joseph being thrown into the pit, sold to the merchants, sent to Potiphar, righteous Joseph, and then in the end raised up to be the prime minister of Egypt, and in one place you have the brother saying, this is what we did. And Joseph, in the end, says, no, 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 no. You may have meant it for evil. You had evil intentions. You had satanic motives. But God meant it for good. There was the lower order of satanic motives. There was the higher motive of God causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you strip God of his sovereignty in the midst and before the tragedy, what hope do you have that God is sovereign after the tragedy? You can't go back to him then and say, well, God, I guess you can sort through all of this like the open theist would say, and that God is a great chess player and he's going to figure out how to make something okay out of this horrible thing. Listen, folks, God is in charge from beginning to end. If you don't think that, two things are true of you. Number one, you don't know your Bible yet. And number two, your God is too small. Your God is too small. Sometimes God uses Satan and his demons to accomplish the glorification of Jesus, the sanctification of his people, the purification of his church in ways that we cannot understand. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was dealing with a sinful, errant brother who was causing not only division, but he, he committed gross sin? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul will be saved. He understood God has got Satan on a leash, and he often uses him to accomplish good and holy purposes. We need never fear him because of that. We need never fear him, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? And so the first thing we need to realize is that Satan's origin is finite. He is not infinite. He had a beginning He had a beginning. The second fact we need to understand is that his kingdom is the world. His kingdom is the world. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 6, 12. Turn with me to Ephesians 6, verse 12. 
We've already read this, and this is the passage that we're primarily dealing with. Starting with verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, there's more here than we could ever possibly cover in one message or even in two. And I touched on this a little bit last week. But notice with me that one of the titles uh, that God gives these spiritual enemies is world forces. World forces. You see, when Satan was cast down to earth, he took a third of the angels with him. And they are now calling the shots for much of what is happening in the world. We need to understand this. We need to understand this. Much of what is happening in the seen, knowable world around us is being influenced and under the sway of demonic forces. Understand now that when Peter speaks of the world, he is not speaking about the earth. He's not talking about the ball. He's not talking about the planet per se. Rather, he is talking about the world system, the world system, the intricate system of government and rule and dominion and reign on this planet. In the beginning, in the beginning Adam had been given dominion over the world to govern it for God. But when he sinned, Satan immediately seized the opportunity to take dominion of the world for himself. His goal was to take dominion of heaven. And since he couldn't get dominion over heaven, he was satisfied, at least temporarily, to take dominion over the earth. Now, I know that may be a new concept for you. And so let me demonstrate that for you out of the New Testament. The scriptures frequently speak of Satan as one who now rules the world. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. And by the way, this is shortly before his death. He knew that the ruler of this world was behind what was going to happen. Again, at a lower level, because we would all agree, right, that behind that was God orchestrating all of this that he had planned since the beginning of time, right? And yet, Jesus is saying, the ruler of this world is coming. And by him he would be crucified. John 14, verse 30, Jesus again calls Satan the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2, 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John 5, 19, we read, John speaking, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this is really interesting. I was studying this on the boys' retreat. When I hit this, it was somewhat shocking. Luke 4, 4 through 6, this is the place where we find Jesus being tempted by the devil. And there's this one statement in here. When Satan tempts Jesus, Luke says, Satan led him up. This is uh, Luke 4, 4 through 6. Satan led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, listen to this, I will give you this domain and its glory. Now, how could he say that? He says, for... It has been handed over to me, and I give it 
to whomever I wish. Now, if that were false, don't you think it would be appropriate for Jesus to say, you are mistaken. For the scripture says that God gave to Adam domain of the earth. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, it is written, you shall not worship anyone but God alone. The issue for Jesus was the temptation to worship a demon, worship Satan. He didn't take any issue with Satan saying, I'm the ruler of this world. And I have the authority to give the world to whoever I wish. Paul even goes so far as 2 Corinthians 4.4. This is a stunning statement. 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to Satan as the God of this world. Little g. The God of this world. (coughs) So when we read in Ephesians 6 that our spiritual enemy consists of world forces... We should realize that the world system, the kingdoms, the governments, the ruling systems of the world are largely under the sway of satanic powers who hate God. Now perhaps I can suggest that this explains some of the indefensible opinions handed down by our nation's highest court over the last couple of decades. I mean, come on, how complicated is it to understand the immorality of killing your baby? Perhaps this explains why American and European education has become such a bastion of godless philosophies and stupid ideologies. Perhaps this explains why we're living in what is perhaps the first time in human history where the average person on the street embraces the philosophy, the mindless philosophy, that there is no such thing as truth. As far as I know, that has never been the case in the world. We've always argued about what is true. The whole issue of the Reformation was never an argument about whether there is truth, but what is truth? You see, Satan's kingdom is not heaven. And by the way, it's not hell either. He doesn't live in hell. He fears hell. And right now, his kingdom is the realm of this world. He is working in it and through it and through many of the leading personalities of our day to bring about all things godless and wicked. And we believe that It won't be long before the Antichrist himself comes and takes his position to rule the world as a whole, the world system, in a Christ-belittling, God-blaspheming way. Now notice also in Ephesians 6.12, Paul calls them world forces, what? Of this darkness, world forces of this darkness. Some translation says this present darkness. Now, what is darkness? What is darkness in the Bible? Is it not ignorance? Is it not willful suppression of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? It is ignorance of the truth of his word. It is ignorance of his good purposes for all who call upon him in truth. Satan's primary means of blaspheming God is keeping people ignorant of the truth. Just don't let them see it. 
Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were formerly, you believers, you chosen ones, were formerly darkness, but now you are what? Light in the Lord. Now, live as children of light. In other words, you used to live in that dark ignorance, that dark, Christ-belittling, God-blaspheming ignorance. But you've been rescued from that. Now, quit living as if you were still there. Live as children of light. Live as people who have been illumined in their mind with the truth of God. Satan's primary plan in this world system is to keep people in the dark about God. He's determined to cause confusion, even at the most basic elemental levels. In fact, I saw a bumper sticker recently that illustrates this confusion perfectly. It simply read this. What if the hokey pokey really is what it's all about? Now that's confusion. That's confusion. Satan is out to blind and confuse. And that's why Paul wrote, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, listen, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's amazing. Satan is out to blind the eyes of the unbelieving. I'll tell you, last night we were, I, I was in a hurry to get things done and leave the camp so we could get home and the time change and all that. I was in a rush to get back here so I could sleep and get up and do this this morning. And uh, I just got in a shower and I was walking up the hill to this, this area where they have set up to make hamburgers, you know, at the boys' retreat. And I was standing there, and, uh, or I was sitting with some brothers eating, and all around me were these Catholic people who were there for this confirmation retreat, being confirmed as Catholic. And it just disturbed me. And I couldn't help myself. I, um, when I got done my burger, I, I saw a boy that had been walking around, and he had a T-shirt, and I didn't understand what it meant. Uh, it had something written on it. I didn't understand what it meant. So I went over to him. We were standing there in the dark by the fire. And I started asking him questions and got to know him a little bit. And I asked him why he was here. And they're here for confirmation. Oh, is that the Catholic Church? Yes, it is. Are they telling you about how you can get to heaven? And he said, no. And I said, um, well, uh, do you believe you're going to heaven? Well, sure. Why? And boy, we got into a conversation that was dark. He was completely blind. And he was there with the Roman Catholic Church to be indoctrinated in the truth. He had no idea why Jesus died. I said, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? He said, I haven't the slightest idea. I said, well, aren't they telling you while you're here about how you can know, how you can have eternal life? No. In fact, I'm not sure why I'm here. <laughs> I've been there all weekend. I was listening to the, the woman teacher 
teach on the Eucharist and the, the seven sacraments and, and all of this stuff that they were indoctrinating these people with. And none of it gave any hope of eternal life. There was no gospel. There was no hope. These were people who thought, if I just get religion, I'll be okay when I stand before God. And they don't realize that Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so that they will not see the glory of God and the face of Christ. I'll tell you what, I started, I started preaching the gospel to them right there, right in the middle of this huge crowd about the glory of Christ and about how he came. I asked him, why did Jesus die? You know what he told me? He told me Jesus died to be a beacon of hope. And I said, that's great. What does that mean? He said, I don't know. He <laughs> had no idea. I began talking to him about how um, when Jesus died, he was fulfilling the law. And the law required perfect righteousness. I said, have you ever read your Bible? He said, some of it. I said, did you ever read in Matthew 5 where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount? And him and his buddy said, no. I said, well, there's a really interesting passage there. And it says, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. They were telling me about the works that they do in order to get themselves in good with God. You know, penance, prayers, and all this stuff. I said, it, it, Jesus said, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you'll not even enter the kingdom of God. And they said, hmm. I said, no, the really amazing thing is the last verse in that chapter, chapter 5 of Matthew. It says, therefore, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And both of these teenage boys said, whoa, that's a high standard. And I said, yeah, you're getting it. You're right. Your standard is way too low. I began talking to them about how Jesus... Fulfilled the law. He lived for 33 years. Did he ever sin? They're Catholics. They know Jesus never sinned. Of course he never sinned. Why did he not sin? We don't know. He didn't sin because in order to save us, there had to be real righteousness. So he lived for 30 years and he never sinned. And then he died. Why did he die? We don't know. He died to fulfill the penalty of the law for sinners. And I shared with him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I told them, when I tell you people almost every Sunday, that the reason that Jesus died and suffered as he did was because God was treating him as if he had lived your miserable, sinful, wicked life, so that he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect, holy, and righteous life. And they were... I had, I had both of my boys on either side of me came walking up. I had people from Calvary standing behind. A group over here is praying, and everybody's watching this thing, and these kids are dumbfounded. They had never heard anything like that in their lives. And they were there to be confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church. You tell me that Satan is not out to blind the minds of the unbelieving? Those people were blind the most elementary truth of the Bible. This is spiritual warfare. On a cosmic level, this is spiritual warfare. These are the kinds of people who will read the Da Vinci Code and say, 
That makes sense. So what does all of this mean for you and me? Well, a couple of things. First, we should not let ourselves become overly disturbed by the evil that is happening in the world. We should never allow the evening news or reports of evil in our society in Iraq, Iran, Korea, to have a negative influence on our faith. Rather, we should understand that God has told us these things were going to happen from the beginning, he told us. And we should be driven to trust him for his grace, which he has promised in the midst of it. Listen, as long as there have been faithful men and women of God living in this world, they have had to live as aliens and pilgrims in the domain of Satan. All of us. All of them. In fact... This is how our salvation is often described in the Bible. For example, Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved sin, uh, son in whom we have forgiveness of sins. And this was amazing. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. This is, Jesus, this is uh, the Apostle Paul explaining what happened on the road to Damascus. And shortly thereafter, when Jesus told him what he was called to do, Paul says that the commission the Lord gave him was, quote, to open their eyes, to open their eyes. Why? So that they might turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. That's your job, Paul. That's your job, to take the gospel, because it is the light of the glory of God, to open the eyes of the blind, that they might see and believe. They'll never see it. They'll never see it until the light of the glory of God in the gospel, gives them sight. And that has all kinds of implications for evangelism, does it not? There's no other way for their eyes to be opened. There's no other miracle cure. There's no spiritual surgery that can be done apart from the miraculous power of the gospel, the simple presentation of the truth of why Jesus died and rose again. And so first, don't allow yourself to become discouraged by the evil you see in the world. Second, don't allow yourself to view this world as your home. This is not your final home. Hold on to the comforts of this life loosely, understanding God's promises for pleasure and rest are primarily future-oriented and not present-oriented. The Apostle John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Now, do you see why? The world belongs to someone else. The world system is not ours, and it's not God's. It's Satan's. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. Now, in this world, Jesus says, you will have what? Tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. This is the proper biblical view of living in the world. Paul reminded us that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. You start living the way that God calls you to live, people aren't going to like it. People are not going to like it. This world is not our home. We are just a passing through. Third, the confusion in the world that we see around us through 
books and movies like the Da Vinci Code and we see people turning apostate because of this false representation of Christian history and doctrine. It shouldn't drive us to discouragement, beloved. It should drive us to the truth. It should drive us to the word. It should drive us to Christ. This is spiritual warfare. And we dare not just lay down our weapons and say, it's too big for me, I can't fight this. You're called to stand. You've been given a strategic position. You are called to keep it and to stand. And so we learn that our enemy's origin is finite. His kingdom is earthly. Third and fourth, just very quickly. Third, his power is limited. Now we've already seen that there is nothing in our, that our spiritual enemy can do to us that does not pass through the mighty hand of a loving God. But there's more. God's restraint upon Satan has always been powerful and real. You remember the story of Moses? They go into Pharaoh. And they're trying to demonstrate that they've come from God. So Aaron throws down his rod. It turns into a what? A serpent. And, and Pharaoh says, oh, that's nothing. He gets his magicians in. They throw down their staffs. And what happens? They turn into snakes too. But then what happens? Aaron's snake eats the magician's snakes. Go ahead and duplicate it if you want to. But you are doomed from the beginning. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we find him again and again and again casting out demons, restoring people to wholeness. We find when Jesus arrives on the scene, if there's a demonic person, the demonic person goes berserk. Please don't send us to the abyss before our time. The devil and his angels are powerful beyond our understanding, yes, but they are no match for the God who created them. Their power is limited. Is it greater than ours? Yes, but it's not greater than God's, and he dwells within us. Revelation 20 even tells us that one day Christ will lay hold of that dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years and throw him into the, to the abyss and shut it and seal it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years are completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time, as if to say, okay, Satan, you've had a thousand years to come up with your best strategy, now let's see what you've got. It's a sovereign move of God to demonstrate his own glory over all things created. You see, though your enemy is great, your Redeemer is greater still. Your Redeemer is greater still. I love Corey Timboon, who coming out of the prison camp, having lost her sister in that debauched, evil place during the Holocaust, she came out, and her perspective was this. We reminded ourselves that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Your enemy is great, but your Redeemer is greater. His power and his dominion are without limits or bounds he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to God, What have you done? He's accountable to no one. Satan's origin is finite. His kingdom is the world. His power is limited. And the third, fourth thing you need to know is that his purpose is doomed to fail. 
His purposes are doomed to fail. Revelation 19.20 And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in, in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Revelation 20.10 then sets its eyes on the devil. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. Their doom is sure. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. You see, the devil and his angels have been doomed from the beginning. Their plans cannot stand. They, they may seek to deceive us and harm us and attempt to have us curse God, the one we love. But they know their doom is sure. Christ has triumphed over them through his cross. I hope you'll be here Easter Sunday morning because I'm going to talk about that. We're just going to carry on with spiritual warfare. And I'm going to show you how Christ has won. And he won on the cross. And now the apostle asks us a question. And it comes from Romans 8. The great eight. Knowing what we know about Satan, knowing what we know about God, here's the question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for our behalf. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all, in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, now listen, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Beloved, that is our hope. He can do nothing to you. You say, well, he could take my life. He cannot take your life unless God lets him. And then it's glory. Until you know that, you'll never take risks for God. Until you understand that to die is gain, you'll never take risks for God. You must understand that Jesus promised that whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. It's just glory. It's just glory. I talked to the youth, the boys this week. I gave them a biographical message. 
on Jim Elliott. And you know his story. But at the end of his life, he didn't know it was the end, but he kept writing things like, um, I am following the path of the short, the great short-lived, namely Christ. I am following the path of the great short-lived, one who didn't live very long, and then he begs his soul, Saul, are you ready to live a short life? He goes to Hebrews and he says, he reads, God makes them flames of fire, speaking of the angels, but he applies it to himself and he asks, Am I able to be burned for God? Am I ignitable for God? And then he prays, God, remove any asbestos practices that keep me from being lighted aflame for you. I am ready. What can happen to me? I might die. That's glory. And he did. And he did. And it ignited a passion for missions around the world that is still burning to this day. I'll tell you, we'll never do anything great for God until we understand that the devil has no power over you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You will never approach an unbeliever with the gospel. You'll be afraid. You'll never go to a family member and say, I love you, but I've got to tell you some things. You'll be scared. All throughout the Bible, God gives us this command. Do not be afraid. Take courage. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. Sure, we used this week with these boys the very first thing that Brent opened up with was a verse out of 1 Corinthians 16, and it says this, Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Sounds exactly what we're talking about, right? The next phrase, Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. You've got to be strong. You've got to act like a man if you're going to do anything great for God. But if you live in fear all of your life, fear of people, that's not who we're called to be afraid of. Fear of the devil, that's not who we're called to be afraid of. Jesus said, don't fear any of them. Fear God, who has the power to cast your soul into eternal hell. All of this, beloved, is to show us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, we need the weapons of our warfare to be spiritual weapons and the armor that we wear to be the bulletproof armor of God. And standing victoriously where God has placed us, we will overcome. And not even death. By the way, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, he's not talking about hell. Hell, hell, Hell's a place of torment. He says, Hades, death, not even death, will overcome it. Standing victoriously against the spiritual enemy begins by learning the truth about who he is and how his reign will end. He has no power over you, beloved. His power was broken on the cross. 
He can trick you. He can deceive you. He can tempt you. But in Christ, you have everything you need to be victorious. And Father, we